Welcome to our continuing series uh, on for Black History Month. And this morning, we're going to uh, continue with a panel discussion on the impact of institutional loss in the Black community. We have with us uh, Ms. Elizabeth Hines, who is a member of the Episcopal Church of the Holy Communion. Some of you probably know her. And Ms. Lisa Gould, who is a member of Christ Church Cathedral. Uh, and some of you may, may also know her as well. Elizabeth is going to speak to us first regarding what happens when you have the loss of an institution uh, that, and how it impacts the community. And she'll be specifically referring to the Sumner High School. Some of you all may be aware that the Sumner High School has been in the news here of late. And Elizabeth is a graduate of Sumner High School and has a personal uh, attraction or affiliation with that institution. Later, Lisa will be talking to us regarding what happens uh, when the healthcare institution closes. Lisa has a close relationship with uh, Homer G. Phillips Hospital as her mother was a long-term employee there. So without any further ado, I'd like to introduce to you Elizabeth and then we'll have Lisa. And then I'm gonna bring a few thoughts to close us out this morning on what happens what is the impact of institutional loss in the black community? Thank you all and thanks for being here with us this morning. I'm gonna move this so that I can get a view of Elizabeth. Well, as many of you may know, uh, there's a controversy in the city of St. Louis regarding the closing of several schools and one of them is Sumner High School. And this is really not the first time that the community has been up in arms regarding the closing of Sumner. Actually, in my mind, there have been at least two other times in the last past years. And you could say that I have a stake in the legacy of Sumner in that I attended Sumner, my sister attended four years before me, and my father spent his high school years there. So I'm gonna give my thoughts regarding the issue. Sumner has been a long-standing entity in the St. Louis community, known for its history of being the first high school for African-American students west of the Mississippi River in the United States. It was established in 1875 in response to provide educational opportunities following a requirement that school boards support black education after the radical constitution of 1865 in Missouri. Sumner was first located on 11th Street downtown between Popular and Spruce. Then it moved in 1880 as a result of an outcry for many parents because of the structures and the vacant buildings that children had to pass on their way to and from school. The current structure was built in 1908 and it was the top of the line for its time. It was named after a well-known abolitionist, Charles H. Sumner. Students came from neighboring counties and even states in order to receive a secondary education. And outstanding scholars and educators came from across the country
for employment opportunities because of lack of employment elsewhere. So Sumner's staff consisted of PhDs, noted scientists, historians, and writers. They were high school caliber, they were high caliber educators that were not found in other high schools during this time. Sumner stood out as a beacon in the African-American community whose middle class, for the most part, centered in the Ville neighborhood and portions of surrounding areas. Now the Ville neighborhood was a thriving area that consisted of black owned businesses, doctors, lawyers, well-known black churches, cultural institutions, the Homer G. Phillips Hospital that's been known across the United States, the Tandy Community Center, and Andy Annie Malone's Children's Home. Many talented and famous people lived in the Ville, giving Sumner the reputation of producing, gradu of producing and graduating outstanding famous people. I share this information to give an understanding of why Sumner High School is held in such high esteem by many African-Americans and why many think it would be a disservice to the African-American community if it were closed and believe its closing would erase history and press harder on the necks of Blacks. Sumner is a product of its time, segregation being a major part of its time. Its decline likewise is due to changing times, changes to the school, the community, and the St. Louis area at large. Sumner was the only black high school until 1927 with the opening of other segregated black high schools. As the city and county grew in population, more and more schools were established for blacks. Particularly with the growth of the county, black families began to migrate from the city thus putting their children in county schools. With the decision that desegregated St. Louis public schools as a result of the Brown versus the Board of Education in 1954, though schools were required to integrate, Sumner remained all black. The loss of students increased as boundaries changed for integration. Sumner, Vashon, and other high schools stayed black, all due to the neighborhood service. Students were also lost as a result of the city-county desegregation program. As families sought to move to the county, the Ville and many other North City neighborhoods lost considerable population, but the Ville neighborhood in particular has become somewhat run down with many vacant lots, houses uncared for, and, men, and much criminal activity. Sumner is in a building that in its heyday housed 1,800 students. Today, it holds 267. There were close to 200 students in my graduation class alone. The school, though architecturally significant, is in need of a major overhaul. It is structurally obsolete for the, for the needs of the children today. 
Many of its students have academic and behavior problems. New technology is needed with all the infrastructure that goes with it. Quality teachers and modern tools, updated books, and other learning materials and equipment are needed. The bigger issue has to do with the fact that the current St. Louis public school system has 68 buildings with a population of 1,800 students. 1,100 students are housed in 13, I'm sorry, 34 buildings that are charter schools. 120 school buildings are funded by the St. Louis public schools. These schools are draining many needed resources. Rockwood, as an example, is one of the largest districts in the county and has 2,200 students in 31 schools. As St. Louis Public looks to close two schools, or as it looks to close schools, two new charter schools are being slated for opening in the fall. The school age population fell to 4,500 from 6,000 in the last decade. And a large number of these students are in charter schools. And I mentioned the charter schools because since they are considered city schools, they receive a portion of the money that the St. Louis public schools would receive from the state. So Sumner's fate is based really on two factors, population and money. And Sumner is not are no longer the school of the good old days. And it saddens me with the write-ups that I hear about it today. And I would almost rather see it close than to succumb to what I hear about. So my opinion is there is a need to change the vision in regards to keeping it open. A Dr. John Wright, a, a noted educator in the area, suggested the school be open to a special group of students, such as the very bright. I question, however, if parents would want to send their children to the area. Also, transportation would be another financial issue for the school. So I think community members and alumni need to take thought of separating Sumner from the St. Louis public school system and opening something possibly that is altogether different, such as the museum, apartments, and our extension of the Annie Malone home. Or, an even, on an even grander scale, rebuild the surrounding community and reopen the school. So in considering the closing of Sumner, I propose three questions. If Sumner closes, what would be lost? If Sumner is lost, is it replaceable? And lastly, what is more important, saving a building with a long, tremendous history or better using the resources of the community for creating a new history for tomorrow? Well, thank you, Elizabeth. Uh, we appreciate your thoughts and your comments and your observations there. I do want to say one thing, though, that probably uh, you probably meant when you said 2,200 students, you probably meant 22,000 
And I think you said 1,100 students and you probably meant 11,000. Uh, so uh, it wasn't, there are more students than that currently enrolled in the city of St. Louis public schools. Thank you so much. And you'll be around hopefully to answer questions later on in the uh, panel discussion. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, now we'd like to uh, turn our attention to Ms. Lisa Gould, who's going to talk to us about what happens when a major institution uh, that has a history of, of uh, being affiliated with the black community, uh, basically operated black, by black people, what happens when that facility is no longer available or closes in our community? Lisa? I can't hear you, Lisa. I think you're muted. Thank you, Chester. Right, um, there you go. I want to give a little history on Homer G. Phillips before I go into how it directly affected me and the community in which I lived in. Um, Homer G. was the first African-American hospital in the St. Louis area from 1937 to 1979 uh, when the city was still segregated. It was located at 2601 Whittier and it was in the Ville neighborhood. It was the first teaching hospital west of the Mississippi to serve Blacks. Um, in 1944, the hospital ranked among the 10 largest general hospitals in the United States. It was consistently underfunded and understaffed. In 1984, it included more than one third of all graduates from, <clears throat> excuse me, from two Black medical schools from 1940 to 1950. A leader in the development of practicing uh, interventional feeding, treatment for gunshot wounds, ulcers, and burns. It had a nursing school, as well as schools for training X-ray technology, uh, laboratory test uh, technologies, uh, medical records keeping, uh, and a nursing school. By the mid-1960s, efforts were underway to reduce services. By the late 1960s, the psych department was moved from, from Homer G. to City Hospital, citing low pay and <clears throat> distance from Washington University. 1964 to 1979, there were no other departments moved until 1917, until August uh, 17, 1979, the school, the hospital closed unexpectedly. My story comes in in 1972. My mother had worked um, at Homer G. Phillips in the 1960s prior to moving to Cleveland, um, Ohio. We moved back to St. Louis in 1972 and she was able to get a job in the food service department. That was the pride of my community because I grew up on Page and Whittier. And that street and that neighborhood, that community, um, every other household when I lived there had someone who worked at Homer G. Phillips. It was a thriving community um, as a child Coming from Cleveland, I understood um, what a thriving community looked like because I had just come out of a, a riot area from Cleveland. 
Um, so it was beautiful to see uh, well-kept lawns and uh, people walking to Hormuji from where we lived with my mom. It was the pride and joy of the community. As in 1975, my mom lost her job there and there, um, due to cutbacks. And she was not the only one in that community that suffered uh, layoffs. Um, unfortunately, you could see the change in that thriving community uh, rather quickly. It's sad to say that once people start losing their jobs, the community itself changed. Homes that were once well-kept and pride of, uh, of that community started to take a downward turn. Unfortunately, um, by 1979, when the hospital closed, there was a year-long uh, protest outside the hospital in order for it to stay open. But by 1979, uh, as many of you know, uh, it was no longer uh, going to survive. And 1980, it by the end of 1980, the protesting did not uh, help it sustain. It uh, were not able to keep the hospital open. Me as a child living in that neighborhood, I saw people being laid off, um, and I saw that neighborhood changing. We left that neighborhood. Uh, shortly after that, because the crime rate had went up significantly. My mom and the women who lived in that area used to walk to the hospital together. But by 1979, late 1979, once the layoffs had started, <clears throat> the community between Page and uh, where Whittier was, you could see a drastic slow decline in those neighborhoods and it was no longer safe to or my mom and the people who lived in that neighborhood were starting to feel like it was no longer safe to to live there and i as a child understood that this was a institution to our neighborhood and i understood that it was um, a livelihood for many of those people who lived in that area. And it was hard to see that the street that I had grown up on had gone from well-kept manicured lawns to every other home being vacated, from being vacated to being gutted and torn down and empty lots left open. Um, it was a hard, um, it was a hard transition to understand as a child, um, but it was also a hard transition to see that the women and men who worked at Homer G. Phillips' lives change, um, and it directly changed my mom's life because once you, um, once she left that neighborhood, we once we left that, once she left that job, I saw that her life took a different turn. She was able to find a job, but it wasn't a job that she had so much pride in and the people in that neighborhood had so much pride in. 
Um, we used to have parties um, at each other's homes and they talked about the doctors and the nurses that, <clears throat> that they saw um, that looked like them, that serviced them, that they could go and have conversations with. Um, it was hard to watch them go from that pride at a barbecue or at a party to speaking um, differently about our neighborhood and about racism or about the institution um, that they had so loved and that they had given they were so proud to work at. Um, and it also showed me that here is a, a here is an institution where everyone could get to by public service. I was a sick child and that was our hospital. My mom learned that you were supposed to go to a hospital where they had your records or the people in my neighborhood felt like they had to be a part of a neighborhood, a part of a hospital that had their records. And to have to go to Barnes Jewish Hospital where most of the people in my neighborhood did not have cars, um, they rode the bus, were not easily accessible to Barnes Jewish that's on Kings Highway. Um, it was difficult to watch and understand as a child to see that. Um, Ernest uh, Calloway said that he thought that maybe giving up the hospital may be the price we have to pay for integrating the community. And it was interesting because it did not integrate our community. It kept it stagnated. Um, that's what I learned from an institution like Homer G. Phillips uh, closing and uh, not being a part of our community. Thank you so much, Lisa. And you please uh, be around to uh, respond to uh, some questions uh, from our audience uh, when we, uh, after we conclude our panel discussions. Absolutely. So, thank you. Thank you for your presentation. Uh, to begin my presentation on the impact of institutional loss in the black community, let us first review a brief history of why we have and have had black institutions. Historically, black institutions were established to serve the needs of black Americans. Two of these, two of the most significant of these were the educational communities, You've heard about one of those in St. Louis and the healthcare community, healthcare institution. You've heard about one of those in the city of St. Louis. Now, in addition to these two major establishments, there would have been retail establishments. There would have been drugstores, cleaners, confectionaries. Today, uh, they may be known as 7-Elevens, but our confectionaries obviously were on a much smaller scales. Um, there were clothing stores, restaurants, all owned and operated by black people. Now, all of the commerce that was available in the larger white community was also available in the black community, owned and operated by black people only on a smaller scale. Now, logic tells me 
that there would have been a great desire for black people to own and operate their own businesses, such as the hundreds of black people who owned the businesses in the Greenwood district of Tulsa, Oklahoma in, May, uh, in, the, in 1921. And you may be familiar with the story of what happened to that community in May and June of 1921 and how it was destroyed. The real and true reason for the establishment of black communities is that prior to their time of establishment and for many years afterwards, blacks were generally denied admission to traditional white institutions. Now this denial was not only in institutions of learning and healing, but also another establishment. It wasn't until the late 1960s that I was able to eat, drink, and sleep at any institution or establishment that I might choose. Black institutions prior to the mid-1960s were the lifeline to the black community. Just as many from a wide cross-section of our community suffer today because of lack of access to resources up until 1964, the relief to the suffering of black people was dependent upon the success of institutions built by and for black people. It was not by chance, but by deliberate cause that all cities in the United States with a significant black population of educated, progressive people had a black hospital. Freeman's Hospital in Washington, DC established in 1862 to provide medical care for slaves. Provident Hospital in Chicago, Illinois, founded in 1891 to provide training for nurses and interns. Homer G. Phillips Hospital in St. Louis, established in 1937, was the only hospital for black people until the relaxation of segregation and the federal government policies relating to Medicare and the state-related programs of Medicaid. By 1961, Homer G. Phillips Hospital had trained the largest number of black doctors and nurses in the entire world. A similar case existed for national and local black institutions. You've heard about Sumner. Well, Harris Stowe University is a historically black college in St. Louis, Missouri. Today it is known as Harris Stowe State University. It was also the first black teacher institution west of the Mississippi. Harris Stowe was originally two separate institutions, Harris Teachers College and Stowe Teachers College. Now they were merged in 1954 following Brown, Brown versus Board of Education into Harris Teachers College. The two, the older of the two institutions, Harris Teachers College, was created in 1857 by the St. Louis Board of Education to prepare white teachers to teach in white elementary schools. Harris was named after William Torrey Harris, who was a superintendent of instruction in the St. Louis Public Schools and also a United States Commissioner of Education. In 1920, Harris Teachers College became an accredited four-year undergraduate college offering a Bachelor of Arts degree in education. In 1890, the St. Louis Board of Education created the Sumner Normal School as an extension of Sumner High School in order to train black teachers 
to teach in black elementary schools. In 1929, the institution was renamed Stowe Teachers College in honor of abolitionist and novelist Harry, Harriet Beecher Stowe. In the wake of the desegregation of public schools, the two colleges were merged in 1954 and situated on the Harris Teachers College campus. But for and in response, and in, in response to requests by alumni of Stowe Teachers College and many in the St. Louis community, the St. Louis Board of Education in 1977 agreed to add the name of the former black institution to the school's name and dropped the, the word teachers. Thus the institution became Harris Stowe College. Had it not been for the effort and desire of these alumni for their history and legacy to not be lost, Stowe would no longer be a part of this institution. This is an example of what happens when black institutions are closed or lost or merged. Another institution that has been lost, disappeared or reimagined is the historically black neighborhood. Think about Kenlock. Generally a black neighborhood is one where the majority of people who live there are black people. And it is a self-sufficient community. The formation of black neighborhoods is closely linked to the history of segregation in the United States, either through formal laws or as a product of social norms. In America, there are scores of neighborhoods, neighborhood designations, the Italian neighborhood, the Irish neighborhood, the Hispanic neighborhood, the Polish neighborhood, the Jewish neighborhood, just as examples. In my experience, it is the black neighborhood as an institution that is most articulated and described in various reports, media, and studies. In St. Louis, you won't hear it characterized as the black neighborhood as much as you will hear it referred to as, quote, North St. Louis or North St. Louis County. As an institution, black people sometimes work and struggle a lifetime to escape the experience of what is now the black neighborhood as it exists today. The black neighborhood as an institution has completely changed from its original foundations and structures. Two pieces of federal legislation led to the disclosure, I'm sorry, led to the closure, disappearance and merger of black institutions into the white, into the larger white culture of America. First was Brown versus Board of Education. You've heard about that other. It was a landmark Supreme Court case, basically that said separate but equal is not separate but equal. There can be no such thing as separate but equal and it was not equal at all. Soon after Brown versus Board of Education, Congress passed Title VI of the Civil Rights Act to provide a mechanism for ensuring equal opportunity in federally assisted programs and activities. Now, in, in, in acting Title VI, Congress reflected its concern with the slow progress in desegregating educational institutions following the Supreme Court's 1954 decision of Brown versus Board of Education. 
Title VI protects individuals from discrimination based on race, color, or national origin in programs or activities that receive federal assistance, federal financial assistance. And passage of this law led to the development of the Office of Civil Rights. And it, it, the Office of Civil Rights in, in its early uh, formation primarily uh, focused its efforts on correcting the unconstitutional activities that existed in elementary and secondary segregation in the Southern states and the border states. However, passage of Title VI was the beginning of the end of many historically black institutions and related establishment that had existed for years under Jim Crow and segregation. See, once Title VI came in, black people were not able to sustain the viability of once what were once considered all black institutions. Black people now had options on where they could send their children to school, where they could get their health care, where they could spend their money. And once white institutions were required to show statistically and empirically that they were offering services to persons other than just white people. Additionally, once government money was assigned to service delivery to black people, black skin was still an issue, but green bucks made black skin more palatable. Now this placed a tremendous hardship and challenge on black institutions. Whichever or whatever the institution, it became a challenge and highly improbable that historically black institutions would survive without the continued support and related, and related financial resources of black people. So the question is, what is the impact of institutional loss on primary and secondary schools, churches, and other black institutions in the community? What is the loss in terms of community identity? What is the loss in terms of community social structure? What is the loss of, in terms of community political and economic power? So I'm going to focus this part of my presentation on one of our own local institutions. A review of the Episcopal News Service in February 2014 indicates that all Saints Episcopal Church in this diocese was founded in 1874. Now it, like 90 historically black congregations still in existence at that time, were churches founded by African-Americans post-slavery and during racial segregation in the United States because they were not welcome in mainstream Episcopal churches. Once black people determined that it might be okay to attend a white Episcopal church in this diocese, the gradual migration began. Not so much just to attend a white church, but more so for other practical reasons like geographical location to one's primary residence or the desire to worship with people of similar social business and economic stature. And an example of the impact of the black church in the community can be characterized from the same article. You see, at that time, Saint All Saints was offering a music and arts village program with free classes for underserved youth ages seven through 11 in North St. Louis. 
This program was designed for underprivileged families who could not otherwise afford music lessons. The church was putting their heart and soul into the community and neighborhood, trying to do the best they can or could for the per people that they were serving. That wasn't the first time in the history of this 140 year old congregation that they saw a need and responded. In 1945, when local banks declined to offer financial services to African-Americans, All Saints founded a credit union for the express purpose of ensuring black people had access to loans to meet the needs of wide ranging uh, financial issues uh, for the community as well as members of the church. All Saints Credit Union, however, faced stiff competition once mainstream financial institutions no longer excluded African-Americans from applying for and receiving loans. And as a result, the credit union closed in 2007. All Saints was the first black church in the Diocese of Missouri and west of the Mississippi. In 1961, it boasted of a membership of 900 plus parishioners. All Saints grew out of a Sunday school that began in 1871, headed by James Thompson, an administrator and teacher of a free colored school in Louisiana, Missouri. Father Thompson became the first African-American deacon and priest in the Diocese of Missouri and by 2010, but by 2010, the membership of the church had dwindled to about 65 people, an average Sunday attendance of 65 people. A quote by Father Dunnington, the priest at All Saint at that time, summed up the issue this way. We're struggling. With an average Sunday attendance of about 65, meeting in a 1930s era building with leaky roofs and malfunctioning boilers. Part of the question that floats around here is, what is the place for an African-American church found really because of segregation? You want to preserve the history, but at what cost? Like any parish of our age, our congregants, we're facing the challenges of where do we go from here and what does it mean to be a church in the 21st century? Some of you may know that the salvation of all saints was to merge with another struggling parish, Ascension Episcopal Church. But the real question is, are we better off as a community with institution that serves all people regardless of color? Or is it more important to have institutions that serve black people so that we can have a history and a legacy for the future? The answer may be, in a special announcement that I received this week on my email. From All Saints and Ascension, I Messengers, received on Friday, February the 19th, 2021. It is with great pride that the vestry of the Episcopal Church of All Saints and Ascension would like to announce that they have chosen the Reverend Renee L. Fenner as the first rector of our church. She has been serving in a temporary position as priest in charge for the past two years. 
All Saints and Ascension was formally established in 2018, but has never had a full-time rector until now. Reverend Renee is the only African-American female priest in the Diocese of Missouri. It further says, please join us in congratulating her on this historic achievement. Now, as I close out, you're probably familiar with the phrase, when one door closes, another door opens. As people of God, we have to be willing to walk through the door, knowing that we may be in a long corridor for a while before we see the light at the end of the tunnel. Thank you. Thank you, Chester and Lisa and Elizabeth. Um, I haven't hopped on yet. And so this is the Reverend Mike Angel. I'm the rector at Holy Communion. And Chester talked a couple of times about an opportunity to ask questions. Uh, just to clarify, that opportunity is during our virtual coffee hour on Sunday morning, February 28th. Uh, if you'd like to ask questions of Chester and of Lisa and Elizabeth on their excellent presentations, um, talk a little bit more with us about what it has meant specifically with these institutions and writ large in St. Louis and America as black institutions have fell by the wayside and closed, um, what that has meant for the black community. Uh, th the opportunity is February 28th, join us at 11.30 a.m. You'll find a link at holycommunion.net backslash info. Uh, we'd love to have you join us for virtual coffee hour and for a chance to talk with our presenters. And let me say to all of you, thank you very much. Um, I sure learned a lot in this presentation and I know others will as well. So thank you.